This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Andrew Elfenbein, a literary scholar interested in what experimental psychology can tell us about reading. This episode is about what we remember after we read. After we finish reading a book, our memories of it quickly fade and can even get distorted. Andrew Alfenbein has studied how the things we read get transformed in memory. What we remember may diverge from what's in the book, but that doesn't mean we're sloppy readers. We're actually using highly sophisticated skills without even noticing. By understanding this process, we can better appreciate how books live on in our minds long after we've read them. Andrew Elfenbein, welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about what we remember after reading and why. Excellent. The first thing that I want to ask you is, you know, when we read a book, um, if it's longer than a few sentences, um, we never really remember every single word that we read. So what, what do our memories look like after we've finished reading a book? It's a great question. And there's a simple answer. We remember what's important to us. So reading moment to moment involves a process of filtering out what's important and what isn't important. And that seems very obvious, but it is actually something that takes a lot of practice and skill to be able to do. Mm. So working with developing readers, children, one of the key things that is helpful for them to learn is how to distinguish what matters from what doesn't. So speaking of children and how they learn to read, um, I saw that you have a son. Yes. So what was it like watching him learn how to read? Like, did you see him struggle with these issues of what matters and what doesn't? As a parent, it's impossible not to feel that if your child is not doing X, Y, or Z by age five, that all is over, you have failed as a parent. And as a gay parent, you feel a special pressure because so much disapproval is out there to begin with. So there was extra pressure. But because I had studied reading, I could recognize that it was going to take a long time and it would take a lot of practice and early on the importance of being there modeling responses which could just mean watching the teletubbies and laughing that is unbelievably important for developing literacy because you're teaching your child that something is funny and that that's an appropriate reaction my son was amazed when we would watch movies when he was a little older that his dads always knew what was going to happen next. And he would say, how did you know that? And the answer was, I have very good genre knowledge. Yeah, so I can see there that you're already showing him the ways that you can decide what to focus on or what to expect based on the kind of thing it is. So, so that's children, but now thinking about adults or experienced readers, um, already during the reading process itself, you're constantly deciding, okay, this matters, this doesn't matter. 
and that then shapes what you remember afterwards? That is the beginning of what you will hang on to, is what psychologists would call the differential allocation of attentional resources, okay, which is that's quite, quite a mouthful, a mouthful uh-huh. but means... Wait, can you say that again? The differential allocation, allocation of attentional resources. Translation, how much attention you pay to anything at a given moment. In order to know what is important or not, you have to have a sense of why you're reading and mm-hmm. what you're reading for. When you're reading a narrative, you know what's important because you've read many narratives before. And you know there's usually a protagonist to track and events are often causally linked to each other. So you look for why the protagonist does what he, she, they chooses to do. And you will probably, all other things being equal, give that particular attention. When you're reading non-fictional prose, you need an entirely different set of criteria for deciding what's important and what's not. Mm-hmm. So that, has, that becomes your filter. Right. That becomes your aid for letting you know what's important and what's not important. The so general... there's all kinds of ways in which you can filter for what you think is important. And maybe, well, you're saying, so for a narrative, at least one of the standard ways to do it is to focus on a protagonist, a main character. Exactly. A protagonist and a causally linked series of events. Mm-hmm. So anything that is not causally linked, such as lots of the wonderful descriptions of Victorian novels that go on and on and on, Mm. but don't actually make anything happen, will probably be harder for you to remember than the events that do make later things happen. So can you give an example of of a specific novel and sort of, I guess, like causally linked still seems a little bit abstract? So... An example of that is in Charles Dickens's Bleak House. Dickens is famous for long scenic descriptions. And in Bleak House, we get a wonderful description of what Bleak House looks like. But your likelihood of remembering it is not high because it in and of itself is not as central to events as more causally linked Events. What's an example of a causally linked event? Jarndyce versus Jarndyce. And okay. Is that like so, a, a court case? So the court case, yeah. exactly. And the characters are all linked to each other through this court case. And because of that, it's very likely that if, if you hang on to anything, it will be Jarndyce versus Jarndyce. Okay, yeah, I see. So, so sort of... Yeah, the event or the thing that sort of makes a lot of other things happen. Exactly. That ties in also a lot of the characters. Exactly. That's inevitably going to be something that sort of lodges in your memory as as more important. And one of the interesting experiments that psychologists did in the 70s and 80s involved comparing events that were causally dense, meaning they made a lot of events happen, versus statements that were repeated a lot. What should matter more? You might think, oh, what's going to matter more is something that is repeated a lot. 
And what they were able to find was actually a causally dense event is remembered better, even if it is not frequently repeated. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Because so if, if you're reading a novel, say, and um, something important happens halfway through, and then whatever kind of outcome there is at the end, that depends on that thing that happened halfway through, even if that thing isn't explicitly mentioned, the ending reminds you of that earlier event. And so it kind of, um, so it's, it's almost a kind of repetition without using the same words. Exactly. So your memory for the plot will typically take a more chronological form than the book may present the events in. Typically, for example, in a detective story, the crime will not be presented first. You won't mm. find out the whole story of the crime until quite late in the novel. Because the whole story is about somebody trying to figure it exactly. out. Exactly. The end of one story, which is typically a murder, will be the beginning of another story, trying to find out who committed the murder. Mm. But when you're reading the novel, you only get the second story. Exactly. And then gradually you sort of piece together... The first. But so what you're saying is that actually... Uh, our memories after we finish reading that detective story will kind of rearrange those events into the order in which they were supposed to happen. Exactly. There's a mm. classic 1977 article called, and I'll say this just for a literary audience, The Remembrance of Things Parsed. So, <laughs> okay. Which is as funny as psychologists get. Um, and what did that say? It showed that readers, given events out of chronological order would remember them in chronological order. I see. Okay. So you parse the events by putting them into chronological order. I see. So, I mean, one general uh, kind of principle about what we remember after reading seems to be that um, whatever the kind of the words on the page are, whatever the text is, you know, our memory is already transforming that in quite drastic ways. Exactly. So this is in some ways surprising because I think we have this common idea that reading is about moving your eyes across the page and extracting meaning there and then. But that totally leaves out what you were saying about sort of the the ways that we rearrange in our mind the different elements of a plot i think that what i've what i tried to say about reading challenges some of the assumptions of close reading which is foundational in the discipline of literary criticism yeah. because the fantasy of close reading is that everything deserves intense scrutiny Mm. Close reading is all about sort of, yeah, the words on the page and sort of looking at each one. The solitary reader alone with the open page that describes one slice of the reading experience. But there's a great deal else that can go into reading, anticipating a book, thinking about what it will be like to read a book and then what happens afterwards. Mm. Remembering a book, remembering a book, an hour later, a week later, a year later. Yeah. I mean, I find that very inspiring because I think, I mean, maybe it's because I'm studying literature, but actually, you know, friends of mine who don't study literature have said this too. I think 
a lot of us can have a tendency to feel like we're failing as readers when we don't remember everything from a book, you know, that we're bad readers, that we haven't concentrated enough. If I'm understanding you correctly, you're seeing that kind of transformation in memory where you lose a lot of what's actually in the text, but you kind of gain other things. That's not a problem. It's actually just like an inevitable part of how books live on in your mind. Exactly. So if you're saying that close reading um, is something that kind of is quite a limited account of the whole kind of um, all the different aspects of reading, both before you actually look at the book and afterwards, um, is there an example of a different way of kind of writing about literature that um, gives a kind of different way of thinking about books after the fact? The example that I use is belletristic criticism from the Victorian period, which... So belletristic is what exactly? Is a word that in the 19th century was a neutral term for high literature. Mm -hmm. In the 21st century has become a derogatory term for what is perceived to be amateurish, sentimental approaches to literature. Um, So is there um, a particular belletristic piece of criticism that you think would kind of uh, illustrate how different it is from close reading? So, great question. (laughs) In my book, I talk about Swinburne, who today is better known as a poet than as a critic, but wrote volumes and volumes of criticism. I quote from his discussion of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights because it was so interesting to me as an example of what can happen to a long-term memory of a book. I'm going to read his discussion or some excerpts from it. The whole work is not more incomparable in the effect of its atmosphere or landscape than of the peculiar note of its wild and bitter pathos. Not till the story is ended, not till the effect of it has been thoroughly absorbed and digested, does the reader even perceive the simple and natural absence of any grosser element in the ingredients of its human emotion than in the splendor of lightning or the roll of a gathered wave. Well, this is too much fun. Wow. (laughs) That's intense. But I feel like, so I'll admit, I haven't read Wuthering Heights. I haven't read all of it. I tried when I was a teenager and wasn't ready for it. But hearing that, I have no idea what that novel is about. Like... I have no idea about what the plot is about. I have no idea about the characters, but I have a really strong sense of the kind of like emotional uh, tone of it. Exactly. And as you noted, it's hard to imagine how he could mention less and (laughs) still be talking about Wuthering Heights. Yeah. But there it is. What he carries away from it is an overwhelming impression of the quality of the passion in the book. 
And he almost, I think he's saying in that passage also that um, it's not until after you've finished reading that you really start to appreciate the achievement. So unlike the kind of close readers who see, you know, the moment of reading with the page open in front of you as the sort of best moment, you know, the, the kind of, uh, I'm not sure what to say, like the, the truest kind of Privilege. reading for him actually it's only afterwards that you properly understand it. Exactly. He is posing a real challenge to contemporary critics in his understanding of the reading process. One last question then. Of course. Um, are, you a more, are you more kind of patient with your own forgetfulness now? Like when you're reading yourself and you struggle to remember things? Not really. Oh. In part because... <laughs> As I'm entering my 50s, short-term memory begins to go, and I resent that bitterly. Mm. <laughs> and there's nothing I can do about it except get used to it. Yeah, and start writing more like Swinburne. Exactly. And you don't need to remember anything <laughs> short-term. <laughs> All right. Well, Andrew Alfenbein, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me to talk. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Andrew discussing how people we meet in real life reshape our memories of fictional characters, and vice versa. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at howtoreadnow. This episode was recorded by Ray Conker and was produced by me, Milanta Luna, and by me, Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.